If you all would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We were in the first 17 verses. Last time we're going to look at uh, verses 18 through 21 this morning. And the title of this morning's sermon is Family Matters. Because it does. Families are the building blocks of society. The family structure that God has designed where children are raised by a father and a mother committed to each other in marriage, is a blessing not only to their children, but to society as a whole. It's undeniable that children raised with two parents in a stable household just tend to do better. And when marriages break down and families fall apart, the children suffer and society suffers. Broken families create burdens on communities, and in our day that takes a toll on the communities at large financially. And statistically, society suffers because children from broken homes typically do not contribute as much positively to society. Now, is that true in every case? Absolutely not. But it isn't an overwhelming majority of them. The family matters. It matters to more than just the family itself. It matters to God, and it matters to society. The Christian family honors God and blesses society. That's the main idea of the sermon this morning. The family is the most basic and most fundamental institution in society. It precedes every other institution in existence. The family was brought into being before any other institution, and the purpose of the family informs the purpose of every other human institution. It's foundational. It's that important. And that's why Satan always has his sights set on destroying the family. He tried to prevent the kingdom of God coming into the world by attacking the family. And he tries to prevent the growth of the kingdom of God by attacking the family. And if you don't believe me, just watch a commercial break during the next football game or, or a, an episode of a, of a sitcom, right? And you can see what's being redefined as family. We have to give the institution of marriage and family as God designed it the attention it's due and remind ourselves of these basic biblical principles regarding Christian living in the home. Now, before I read these rules for Christian households Paul lays out for us here, I want us to recognize the second most important thing to remember about Christian homes is that sinners live there. The most important thing to remember about Christian homes is that the sinless Savior lives there too. That's the most important thing. He doesn't leave us where he finds us. He grows us out of sin and into righteousness. For his namesake, he says he does that. Families have a vital role to play in bringing all things in heaven and on earth under one head, Jesus, for the praise of his glory. We get that idea from Ephesians chapter 1. But let's read now Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. It's the word of God. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and God, I sincerely and humbly ask that you would just move me out of the way this morning so that you may speak to your people, that your word would be heard, that it would take root and transform the lives of the people here. For your glory, God, and yours alone, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a turn here from the spiritual family Paul's been describing in all the previous verses leading up to this, and it's now turning to the physical family. In other words, being a part of the spiritual family Paul's been talking about has an impact on our families and our homes that we see every day. The putting off of the old and putting on of the new that Paul's been describing, it has an effect. This is what it looks like in our homes. Our relationship with God should affect our relationship with others. Paul gave me two points, so I'm going to roll with those. Marriage and children. The, the, the verses after this start going into slave and master, and there's a lot we could say about that, and I'm saving that for another sermon. We've got enough to chew on here with just marriage and children, all right? Now, under marriage, we'll talk specifically about the responsibilities of husbands and wives, and under children, we'll talk about the responsibilities of children and the responsibility of parents. But here's a heading you can put along with both marriage and children. They are by God, for God. Marriage is by God, for God. Children are by God, for God. So first up, marriage. You know, God has a purpose for us in our families. And the purpose is, is farther reaching than just us building memories together and having good stories to tell the grandkids. And so it's important to recognize what his purpose is. And the, the, we have to realize at the, at the outset the most basic and most important and most blessed relationship on earth is between a husband and a wife. Everyone tends to agree with that until the wife becomes a mother. Then the lines get a little blurry, right? Because mamas love their babies. But God put a man and a wife in the garden, not a parent and a child. The marriage is foundational. And y'all realize what I'm about to say probably doesn't fly today, and that goes to show just how far from these principles our culture has run. But let me say this. The best way for you to be a good mom to be a good wife. The best way for you to be a good dad is to be a good husband. Children deserve parents who are wholly devoted to one another. Nothing will stick with them more and affect their lives more. It's good for them to see that they are not at the top of your list. Mommy is, right? Daddy is at the top of mommy's list. Your spouse comes first, and they'll be here last. 
when the children are gone. You know, there's a sense in which you should be daydreaming about the day the youngest one leaves the house, and it can just be you again. And if that sounds weird, it's because we've bought into this lie that our children are for us. They're not. You know, think of it this way. I, I like a good light, light, I mean light, woodworking project every now and then. And so I, I, I belong to some of these Facebook groups and follow some Instagram accounts of these master woodworkers that make some of the most incredible, most, it, they spend years designing these boats, y'all, that they build by hand. And it just blows me away. You're talking like 10,000 plus man hours. And they bend every, every board and they, every, the way everything comes together like it's one piece, it's incredible. It takes a lot of skill and time and dedication to do that. Now let me ask you, do you think the guy who's doing that ever dreams about the day he puts it on the water? Yeah, he does. That's what it's for, right? One day this thing's going to hit the water, and it better float. And it better float for a long time after I'm gone. You're preparing your children for their purpose, and their purpose is not their pleasure or your pleasure and having them for as long as you have them around. It's not the ultimate purpose. God has an end in mind for your family. Something he's going to be working on not for years, but for generations. And it starts with a man and his wife. You know, maybe you've never thought about it this way before, but the best thing you can do for your sons is to teach them to be good husbands. The best thing you can do for your daughters is to teach them to be good wives. You will have won as a parent if you do that. That's what success looks like. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many letters come after their name if they don't have that. Prepare them to be great at the most important job and foundational relationship they will ever have. Nothing will have a greater or longer lasting impact on them, your descendants, and everyone whose life they'll ever touch. Now, for any of this stuff we're talking about to work, we have to know the love of Christ. It's a must. You don't, you don't treat your spouse the way they deserve. That's not what Christian husbands and wives do. Because that's not the way Christ treats us. Amen? Love is founded on grace, not law. Jesus doesn't say, I, uh, I, I will love you and commit myself to you if you fill all my expectations. And when you don't, I'll drop you like a bad habit. It's not the way Christ loves us. He commits himself to us, and he promises he will never leave us no matter what. That's what love looks like, and that's the kind of love that ought to be displayed in our marriages because it glorifies God and it blesses others. It's good for the family, and the family blesses society. The family is good for society, yeah? As we get into what God says specifically to wives and husbands and to children, we have to couch it in the fact that we are in Christ, as Paul's been talking about. And it's only because of that that any of this is possible. But one thing we need to recognize at the outset is that being in Christ 
doesn't erase all distinctions and relationships between human beings. It transforms them. All one in Christ eliminates distinctions between people as they relate to God, but it does not eliminate distinctions between people as they relate to one another. This passage was uh, controversial and countercultural then, and it's certainly countercultural now. It was countercultural then because it forced people to see there are no distinctions between people as it relates to God. And it's countercultural today because we believe there are no distinctions. Verse 18. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, not because they are worthy, but because Christ is worthy and he commands it. And we are all in Christ, so we are all supposed to be submissive to Jesus. So what I want to make sure we understand right away is when we're talking about submission, Submission isn't a female thing, it's a Christian thing. Wives, the way you submit to Christ is to submit to your husband. Not to men in general. It doesn't say that. But the one man who is your husband, he had to ask for your hand in marriage. You had to choose to give it to him so that he would lead you. Because it's fitting in the Lord. That's what it says there. That's what's on the tail of the command. Not because your husband's better than you or because he's better at you at anything. But because it's fitting in the Lord. If you are a Christian, it's your desire to do what pleases the Lord. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And the word Paul uses there in the Greek is hupotasso. It means literally to, to line up under, to come up underneath. It doesn't mean fetch his slippers. It has absolutely nothing to do with being at his beck and call. It has everything to do with being rightly ordered and united in battle. It's literally a military term. The family is a weapon for victory in God's arsenal, and it's only effective when it's ordered his way. And this is his way. It doesn't mean wives are inferior to their husbands. It's not about superiority. It is about functionality and how God intended families to operate, as Matt said with the instruction manual a few minutes ago. And this flies in the face of the cultural practice of the day. In their day, when the Colossians were gathered around to hear Paul's letter read, and today when we read it, you know, women during this time were literally viewed as inferior to men. It wasn't like an opinion of some people, it was assumed by all. They were just considered less than equal. And Jesus changed that for them. The spread of the gospel and Christianity in the ancient world is what liberated women, not enslaved them. The widespread influence of Christianity did that for women. And Paul grounds what he's saying here about husbands and wives in creation not the culture. We tend to do the opposite. You know, when we, we find ourselves like, how do I be a good this and good that, and what am I supposed to do? We ask the question, what am I supposed to do? Isn't that what we ask? We don't ask, 
what does God want me to do? That would solve a lot of problems real quick, bring some clarity about. It's not what do I do, how do I do it, it's what does God want me to do? How, do, how can I do it in such a way that it pleases him? When God created man and woman, he gave them dominion over the earth. He, he created the woman as a queen, not as a slave. Her role and purpose was to help her husband rule the world. Let's do something weird. Ladies, would all of you please stand up for just a minute? Cindy was the first one up. <laughs> Everyone in the room, I want you to take a look around. This is the image of God expressed in beauty and tenderness and in compassion. We are surrounded by, behold, the finest and fairest of all of God's creation. I don't think it would be inappropriate for us to praise God with a round of applause for his most remarkable creation. Young, sit down. May it never be said that Christians hold women back. We don't hold them back. But we don't put them out in front and let them take all the bullets either. We protect them. Because God says they are precious and they are be to be protected. They are to be cherished and that's different than what men are supposed to do and be. That's not a popular opinion today. You know, if men want to dress up like women and rob women of the adornments God has given only to them because they are beautiful and lovely and made in his own image in a unique and glorious way, we say, that's okay. A man can be woman of the year. A man can be Miss America. A boy can be homecoming queen. And y'all, that's not a joke. I saw a video just this, this past week or within the past couple of weeks where a boy in a dress won homecoming queen at his high school. And the crowd cheered. That is shameful. Not because it's gross. Christians who hurl abuse at the transgender community because it's gross are missing the point and frankly need to grow up. It's not shameful because it's gross. It's shameful because it is blasphemous and insulting. It mocks God and it's an absolute insult to every little girl and grown woman who is blessed by her creator with the honorable and glorious title and role of being a woman made in his own image. When Adam saw the glorious gift God gave him when he made Eve, no one had to convince him she was the most spectacular thing on the planet. 
He's saying, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this was before the fall, of course, and so his view of his wife was untainted by sin. And what he saw when he looked at her was an essential unity between man and woman. And in that unity, there is no inferiority. She was entirely equal. But they were assigned different roles in order to carry out the task that God had given them. The tendency to follow was woven into the very fabric of Eve's soul when she left the hand of her creator. And that being the case, any attempt to reverse that order or rebel against it is displeasing to God. It's an insult. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. If you are in Christ, you are submitted to Jesus, and he is pleased with a wife who embraces the role that God has made for her. Don't reject it because your, your husband's a bonehead. He is. He's a bonehead. Embrace it because Jesus is worthy. He is. He is worthy. Wives being submissive to their husbands is a key piece in the family that glorifies God, displays his goodness, and blesses society. The family is a fundamental institution, and the foundation of it is marriage. And husbands and wives have different roles. What are the whole roles of husbands? Verse 19, husbands, he says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Y'all ever wonder why God calls the wives to submit and the husbands to love? What's up with that? In, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uh, tells wives to respect their husbands and husbands to love their wives. You see the same thing again in 1 Peter chapter 3. You know what you don't see? You don't see God commanding the wives to love their husbands. What's, what's with that? Part of the reason is because God knows your tendencies and inclinations. Ladies, he knows you might naturally bristle or chafe under your husband's authority. Your difficulty won't be in loving him, it'll be in submitting to him and respecting him. So he addresses that. And men, he knows you will be inclined to abuse your authority he has given you. You are going to be prone to, to being a tyrant or a sloth. And neither one of those is worth the respect of your wife, but he tells her to give it to you anyway. It should be very humbling. So he knows our inclinations, he knows our tendencies, and he speaks directly to those, but here's the thing, there's something in the word, in the love word that Paul uses. It's for how we're to love our wives, guys. It's the sacrificial, self-giving love Christ has for his church. That's a tall order. It's, it's a love that's so strong you can't resist it. And that there's, there's nothing you can do to make him withdraw it. Husbands are called to love their wives like that. And ladies, listen, it's the kind of love that would take a bullet or jump in front of a train for you. That's how husbands are called to love their wives. Wives aren't called to do that for their husbands. 
They're not supposed to. That kind of husband, too, gets a little easier to respect, too, doesn't he? That, that sort of head of household is somebody you might like to submit to, and that's what God calls him to be, ladies. That's what he works into him, his sanctifying work by his spirit and his heart. That's why we get instructions like these, because being in Christ doesn't erase our distinctions in our relationships, right? It transforms them. God is doing something in us and through us as individuals and certainly as families. What we get a hint of here as we're looking through this is that God calls men to be willing to die for their husbands. I'm sorry, men to die for their wives, willing to die for their wives, and for wives to be willing to live for their husbands. Now, I'm not suggesting anyone here would react this way, but a woman might hear that and say, I'm, I'm not, shouldn't have to live for anyone but me. But interestingly, that same woman probably doesn't have any trouble living for her children. That tends to come very naturally. But Jesus doesn't call us to what comes naturally to us. He calls us to be what he made us to be. And what he called the woman to be is a helper to her husband. And he died to raise us to do new life so that we could actually do that for his glory and for the good of his kingdom. The one who made you, men and women, made you for these roles and supplies you the power to be able to fulfill them. And if you are born again, a new creation in Christ, he knows that you will be fulfilled and satisfied in his design and purpose for your life. He wants you to be fulfilled in them. And here's the thing, too. The emphasis, y'all, in these verses is not on the husband's authority to govern, but on our, our, our responsibility to love, guys. On our responsibility to love. You stay out of her verse, okay? You stay out of her verse. That was God's command for her. That's between them. Your command is to love. God only gives authority for the purpose of service. Authority is delegated by God, and proper authority is exampled for us by Jesus. And he says he did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the kind of authority you get, guys. It's not about power and privilege. It's about duty and service. Your God-given authority is for the purpose of service, and your verse here is about love, not your authority. Jesus, who was and is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is Philippians 2. Sounds familiar, right? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How's that for authority? How's that for love? Where did that start? 
did not count equality with God, even that kind of authority, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. A husband's love for his wife is unconditional and sacrificial. It's a cherishing love and an understanding love. That's the kind of love Jesus has for his bride, you, the church. The love a husband is supposed to have for his wife isn't just one kind of love either. It's all the kinds of love. It's all the kinds of love. It's intimate and sexual, to be sure, so it's unique in that way, but not to the exclusion of all the other kinds of love. She's supposed to be your friend, gentlemen. She's bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh. She should be your most favorite person in all the world and not, not just fill one category for you, but all of them. Your marriage is the only relationship in this life that encompasses all the types of love that, that gives you a hint of how rich and all-encompassing Christ's love for you, his church, is. It's all those things. It's the clearest picture we have of the, the, the love that Christ has for us. And that's what God intends marriage to be. It's literally the nucleus or the bedrock of human existence. How can we love others if we don't know how God intends for us to love our own wives? What benefits can we be to the kingdom of God if we're not benefiting the people in our own little kingdoms at home, right? Children are part of those little kingdoms at home. Here's what Paul has to say to them, verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And what's Paul mean by, by children here? Everyone? Everyone's someone's child, right? And, and you know, a, a child at any age should honor their parents. But it's pretty safe to say Paul's actually talking about young children in, in this passage, right? He's, talking, he's addressing households. He's, he's talking about obeying. Certainly, it would not be expected or appropriate for, you know, a 40-year-old man to, you know, obey his father and everything. He should show him honor. But what's in view here is a household, what's happening in the home. And so what's interesting about that is Paul's addressing young children in the congregation like they're people with responsibilities. You know, the Bible never shelters children from responsibility. The, the church and its covenant blessings are for them as much as for you. The worship of God and responsibilities in the church are not something you do when you grow up. They're something you, you grow up with and grow into. So children have a huge responsibility. And we often pretend like children, children can't handle responsibility, but God intends to use them to carry out his plans for the human race. So children, small children, let me see your eyes for just a minute. Let me get your attention back for just a second. God tells you to obey your parents in everything. One reason is because they, they've just they've been around a lot longer than you have. They've seen stuff you haven't seen. They've been places you haven't been. They know stuff. But what's more important than that is they love you. 
God loves you. And he gave your parents to you. He gave you to your parents. And you know what? He expects a lot out of them. He expects them to take good care of you and to teach you, to protect you. But he expects something of you, too. He expects you to listen and to obey them. God, I know a lot of you are still real little, but God wants you to know you can trust and obey him. And the way that you can do that now is by trusting and obeying your parents. Okay? Honor your father and mother is the first horizontal commandment we have in the Ten Commandments. When God moves away from the commandments that directly deal with how we are to relate to him and starts to shift to how we ought to relate to each other, he begins with how children are to relate to their parents. It's foundational for everything else that follows. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. They can learn how not to do that in the world by practicing it in your home where the stakes aren't quite as high yet. It starts at home. So how people treat each other in general in the world starts with this commandment. That's why the Christian family matters. It matters to God, and it matters to society, doesn't it? You know Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, he, he actually cites disobedient children and disrespecting parents as one of the reasons Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Things have gotten out of hand, have gone on for too long, and the morality of the culture decayed. Society suffered because of the famine. Society falls with the famine. We know in the fifth commandment, God promises blessing with it so that it may go well for you, so that your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you may be long, right? God grows his kingdom, y'all, by growing our little kingdoms at home. You know, I often wonder, I wonder would we stress out so much about evangelizing lost people if we just discipled our own children at home? It's not to say we wouldn't do it. But the kind of, so much of the evangelism you'd engage in around here would not be with people who have never been to church. They've been. They, they, they went to youth group. They went to VBS. They got baptized. But their parents' Sunday religion wasn't enough. And so, they have to go make disciples out of people who should have been their parents' disciples. Building strong and godly families is your chief priority in life, those of you that are fathers. It's your chief priority in serving God. That's why the qualifications for leaders in the church are primarily aimed at how well you're managing your home. The family is supposed to be an environment, y'all, of love and learning about God and godliness and the responsibility that God gives there is laid squarely on the man's shoulders. Obedience is to be expected. Disobedience is to be corrected. And Paul says there, verse 21, regarding fathers and discipline, fathers, do not provoke your children 
lest they become discouraged. Now, we read that in English, and we'd be like, don't provoke my children. Like, I don't challenge them to a fight. But what you, gotta, what you have to get at here is Paul isn't saying, don't, he's saying don't cause your children to react to you and your discipline in such a way that they become discouraged. What Paul's concerned with is he doesn't want these precious covenant children in the church to, to lose heart and eventually rebel against God because his representative in the home, the father, didn't do what he was supposed to do. You can provoke the kind of rebellious behavior in your children that we want to be able to avoid two different ways. One, by not addressing it. And two, by addressing it like a tyrant. Children should not be ignored by their fathers, nor should, they, nor should their children be forced to live in fear of their fathers, right? So children can become discouraged by fathers who are not caring and consistent in the way they provide correction and instruction in the home, and they can also become discouraged by fathers who withhold the correction and instruction that their children so sorely need. So it's not just about aggression. It's not just aggression that provokes. It's passivity, too, that can cause a child to become discouraged. Abuse by fathers in the absence of fathers destroys lives for generations. In absence doesn't just have to be geographical. I'm sure we may have people in the room this morning who had a father that was around, but maybe not available. Am I right? And how did that affect you? Fathers who don't discipline at all or don't discipline in an instructive way that, that ministers to the child rob those children of the blessing God intends for them to have in the home. We all know children don't like how discipline feels, but they like what it does. It makes a broken and confusing world that they don't know that much about yet look as beautiful and as hopeful as God intends for it to look to them at their age. It's, it's, there's order, right? Not confusion. They, they, have, they have reason to hope and reason to trust. They have reason to obey and reason to expect blessings for obedience. Your job is to make obedience easy, dads. Your job is to make obedience easy. Unannounced rules that only get made after the offense provokes your children and discourages them from obeying. You know, too many rules leads to a lack of consistency and, and it leads to confusion and frustration and eventually provokes a child to, to give up on obedience altogether because there's no bother in trying. We have three rules in our home. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You don't need my program. You need a biblical principle so you can come up with your own. But I can tell you God only gave ten commandments, so if your list gets longer than that, I'd cut it down a little bit. God only gave one command in the garden. It was a garden full of yeses and only one no. Home should 
looks something like that. Home should be safe. It should be a place of love and harmony. And when it's not, those children being raised in a Christian home are entitled to a father who gets it right and restores the harmony in the home. Fathers should be peacemakers. Not peacekeepers. Makers. When when there's not peace in the home, you make peace. You catching what I'm throwing? When a child's behavior places them outside of fellowship and harmony in the home, you bring them back into the fellowship and you remind them that it's better there. Being in the fellowship shouldn't feel like slavery to the child. Being outside of the fellowship should feel dangerous because it is. It's not good for them or anyone else. And so your discipline, in a sense, should feel like being rescued. It doesn't doesn't just correct, it restores. That's what Jesus does with us. He brings us back to our senses and back to a place where we recognize we should have been all along. And we're like, oh, yeah, I like it here. That's what he does with us. And that encourages us and incentivizes us to obey. It makes us open to receiving correction. And if your children view discipline as something that only happens when you fly off the handle because you finally had enough, or if they think you're being unfair because you haven't clearly laid the ground rules or explained why they're receiving the correction in the first place, then it's not going to be received. It's not going to sink in. They could become embittered toward you, discouraged. Paul warns against that. Primarily because they might read that into their relationship with their heavenly father and take that out into the world, and that won't be good for anybody. The family matters. Paul says, don't provoke your children so they become discouraged. So rather than that, instruct them, encourage them. There's certainly a lot of practical ways to do that. There's books you could read, okay? But the general principle is, aim them at God's law. You can point them to the cross. They're just not going to know why they need it until they see their sin nailed to it. Think of the number of times in Scripture, y'all, where we're encouraged to meditate on God's law day and night. To fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and understanding. In every instance, it's so that it will go well with us. Meditate on the law. Remember it. Keep it on your lips. Teach it to your children. So on and so forth. Why? Because it's good for you. That's why. And after the cross, this this side of the cross, it shows us we need forgiveness. It's how we learn that we need forgiveness. It's where we learn that sin has consequences and the penalty is death. That's when Jesus begins begins to matter in your child's life. When they can say, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. And I know when we talk about that, you know, encouraging your children, instructing your children, guys, fathers, 
don't work very well with abstracts sometimes. We want something concrete, something we can bite down on. <clears throat> so I'll tell you, if you're looking for what you can do to begin weaving positively into your children as far as instruction goes, give the book of Proverbs a whirl. It's a great place. I mean, it was literally written for the purpose of training young boys, and not, not just boys, okay? It's universally applicable. It's God's word. It's for girls too. But go to Proverbs. Here's what you... Here's what you'll learn to model and to teach your children just from the book of Proverbs alone. Diligence and industriousness. Justice. Kindness. Generosity. Self-control in speech and in controlling their tempers. Righteousness. Honesty, discretion in choosing friends, that'll come in handy. Discretion in choosing a spouse, even better, right? Caution and prudence, gentleness, contentment. You need to encourage them to major in that one. Integrity and character, humility, graciousness, the importance of being forthright. Restraint, how to restrain themselves in given situations. How to be a good friend. Purity. Pursuing what is good and right and true. Skillfulness in labor, skillfulness in work, and patience. Now let me go back to where we started this conversation. I said in the beginning the main idea was that Christian living in the family honors God and blesses society. What would it be like if children before they were sent out into the world to work and marry and have children of their own, they had 18 years of practice in these things. What would the next generation be like? If they grew up with a mother and a father in the home that put each other first, and where the father made sure that the home was a sanctuary full of joy and laughter and and peace, and when it wasn't, he did something about it. That's what our Heavenly Father did for us. He did something about it. God will continue to bring blessing and healing to the nations through the proclamation of the gospel, but that gospel has to come from the lips who have known it and felt it. And there's no place the sacrificial love of Christ can be felt more than in marriage. And no place its benefits can be seen more than in the family. Being in Christ, being in one big family of God, doesn't eliminate distinctions, it transforms them. And performing our assigned roles well within the family glorifies God and it blesses society. Family matters to God. And it matters to society. So we should recognize that they are by God and for God so that they begin to matter to us in the same ways that they matter to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we, we thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father. God, we thank you that there is no confusion in you. You are not a God of confusion. 
We thank you, Lord, that you rule and reign over heaven and earth, and that, God, you are redeeming all things. And for those of us who, who you have bled and died for, Lord Jesus, that we know that we have been redeemed. We know, God, that by the power of your Spirit, we can do all the things that you command us to do. And not perfectly, all day, every day. But God, we ask that you would create in us a desire to be conformed more into the image of your Son that does what is pleasing all of the time. God, I ask that you would make it so for his name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.